0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at DominicMonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to Sally Henderson. Sally is an executive change mentor, a podcast host, and thought leader in her space. She mainly coaches CEOs of digital agencies, large digital agencies, uh, to help them and their teams overcome significant change in their business. And Sally and I chat about how she ended up doing what she does, and that sort of torturous journey that she went on, how she got herself fired because there was a difficult conversation she couldn't have, and how she started a business. But was just successful but not happy. And then how she went from that to starting a family, starting another business, still not being happy, and how she transitioned out of that to now what she sees as her her calling, uh, really. She shares that journey with us. She also talks, gives us some tips and tricks, some things at the end that we could do today, a couple of things we could do today or tomorrow in our teams that could make a difference to us. And as ever, she shares some book recommendations and what she knows now that she wished she'd known then. I had a great conversation with Sally. She's effervescent, full of life. Uh, If you're listening to this on your way to work, this will definitely be the pick-me-up that you needed to uh, get you into a great mood before you hit the office. Enjoy.
1: I'm Sally Henderson. I'm an executive change mentor. I love to work with high-performing senior leaders who are looking for three things. They're looking to get greater leadership themselves because, funnily enough, a lot of senior folks can't answer that question. What does leadership mean to me? By that, they're wanting to have the commercial impact and growing their business. But to me, the clients I really love to work with, and it's a core theme, I think, throughout all my client base, is that these clients recognize the importance of also living a richer life. Because there's no point having success, no matter how you categorise it, title, money, selling X companies for Y or whatever it might be, if you're not feeling your life is rich. And I think there's too many people out there in this world of work of ours that aren't having a rich life despite
0: being very successful. Thank you, Sally. Thanks for coming on and talking to me today. What, when people feel as though they, they're not living a rich life, what does that, how does that show up for them?
1: It manifests in lots of different ways because I'm a massive believer that everyone's individual. But there are common themes in that often there's that classic imposter syndrome, which I know sounds such a cliche to dive into straight away. But a lot of times senior people who are extremely, extremely successful in the eyes of others don't feel that connection for themselves. So there's a wealth of evidence when you're chatting to them, but look what you've achieved this, you overcame that, you've done that. And on many different levels of success, so some financial, cultural, on a family basis, on a personal growth basis, on overcoming adversity basis. Often my clients tick all those boxes, but for whatever personal reason to them, it's not connecting, it's not resonating. They're feeling like they're an imposter. They're feeling, they often have a misconception that to be successful you have to work really hard. And actually, once you start to relax and enjoy that success, that's when the fear of it all being taken away could kick in. So they never actually give themselves permission to arrive at a place where they're acknowledging success, because that's an alien feeling to them, often from the inside out. So I often say that my work will always start with creating powerful transformation inside out, because we're all people, we're all humans, we're all carrying our own stuff. And that stuff can be having a massive effect on how you show up at work, Um, whether you acknowledge it or not
0: how do you end up today doing this then this must have been some journey of enlightenment it doesn't sound to me as if that's the type of work that you're called to that one day you wake up and go I know what I'm going to do I'll go and talk to the careers advisor I wish it had been that (laughs) simple but also also I don't actually because when I work with my clients I'm not coming
1: from a place where I've gone off and learned a model from someone else I'm now just selling it My experience has given me a lot of insight and empathy for just how hard change can be. I was in that seat in my own way. I had a successful recruitment business. We worked with the best clients out there in the branding sector. And I was having a massive impact on loads of businesses and lives. But it wasn't enough. I joke with my clients, but it's a bit of a hard joke. And it's on me that it's so annoying that wasn't enough for me. Because I had <laughs> sweated blood and tears, literally twenty-four-seven, to build something that was incredibly, in inverted commas, successful. If you look uh-huh. outside in, but I was that classic waking up at three a.m. worrying. The irony, the fraud of it all, Dom. When my absolute mantra of my recruitment business, which was called the Career Company, so I've always been in this theme of what looking at the bigger picture. My absolute belief, which it still is now, is that you have a right to be happy and effective at work and guess who wasn't me (laughs) i had to listen to that and i and i had to walk away from something that technically was working on every level but just Uh for me as the founder and the owner so that journey of going very i got very close because recruitment i use as a vehicle basically to coach and mentor so i'd get lovely feedback from my clients going you're just not like the normal recruiter Sally and I'm like I know but to me this is just how you should do recruitment it should be about honesty integrity intelligence care empathy <laughs> understanding coaching and yeah doing what's right because why would you not you know it's a privilege to guide and support people through the most some of the most significant transition plans of their life and their company so, I had a lot of hours in the saddle of being at that pivot moment of change and influencing it and supporting it and creating change that other people said was impossible, which was incredibly rewarding. But it wasn't enough. And so, I had to kind of a, you know, walk away from that, which made me and my husband redundant at the same time with a new baby. And <laughs> 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 not actually know what the answer was, but just knew I had to follow it. I had to follow it. Again, I'm, I'm cliche queen. You'll hear that in the next.
0: Is that, was the new baby and the decision to do something different or are they, is that coincidental or are they connected?
1: No, they were connected because having Hugo, my eldest, who just turned 10, so a bit of a timeline there, when I actually had him and I physically had to stop being in this business that I loved and didn't love at the same time, it gave me perspective. I was an utter control fiend back then in a great way for lots of people, but I'm sure my staff would give me some good feedback about that now. But again, I've learned through mistakes, which is a good thing. And having some time off, although I was physically away from the business, but emotionally and mentally, I never stopped. And that was a big learning for me. I suddenly had a perspective of thinking, God, you know what? I never actually wanted a recruitment company in the first place. I kind of only built it because I couldn't find the job I wanted. And so I thought, sod it, I'll just make my own. And ultimately I realized i built up this successful entity that was in the wrong vehicle. And I had this like, epiphany moment thinking, right, if I went 10 years in the future and I'm looking at what I'm doing, do I want really to be doing this job then? Another irony was I had transformed and radically altered people's lives and directions and growth, but felt that mine wasn't growing in the same way. Actually, I, I needed to step out of this, this vehicle I created to actually have the freedom to grow myself. And so, yeah, having Hugo in that time away and just having that moment to think, God, go 10 years forward. Do I think this is what I want to keep investing in and building and nurturing and sweating over? And I just knew deep down that it wasn't and that I needed to take control again. Because actually, here's an interesting story. I got myself fired from my first proper job in London because I told every man in this dog, a woman in their dog, that I was so unhappy in my job. I didn't know what to do to make change, but I knew that I needed to change. So I sabotaged myself. And I kind of knew what I was doing, but I was never advised this to anyone else. And I gave away power. And it did ultimately put me on a great path. So I talk about change has not been easy. (laughs) I've certainly chosen the colorful route. Back then, getting fired wasn't fun. But it taught me a lot. And it taught me never be fearful of making change on your terms. Because it was the fear of the unknown that held me in this constant kind of groundhog day of, oh my God, this isn't right, but I don't know how to change it. Uh Having had that lesson before, I was like, look, my company's in a great place. There's a lot of asset in it. I will look after the people and really respect what what they've given me, but they will all be fine because they're all amazing. I have to do what's right for me. And that's by taking control back and actually stopping this company whilst it's still got a lot of assets to give me back as a thank you. Rather than, I think people often drive themselves into positions of utter no choice and hand that control over again through just not being strong enough or brave enough to go through what is often really uncomfortable and painful change without any guarantee on what's on the other side.
0: Yes, that happens to people all the time. Relationships, work, a lot, family, happens to people all the time that.
1: Yeah, because it's safer to stay stuck in like self-pity, in boredom, in stagnation, and look at the paycheck and look at the illusion that security is giving you that, well, at least I know what I'm dealing with. And what I find really interesting, I worked with a great coach back then. And he gave me, when I was first getting into my whole interest in coaching and NLP and growth and personal development, amazing advice, which I give to my clients all the time. I became an expert at decision because I couldn't make a decision, but I became an expert at knowing how not to make it. <laughs> and so every day I would turn over these questions. What shall I do with my career? I mean, I'm in my, in my mid-twenties. Oh, my God, I'm at the, you know, like, time's running out. I mean, <laughs> I must maximise my potential. This is why I went to university, all those little things that get in your head which are ridiculous and I was in a complete state of distraction and not even living in the real world because I was living in this fantasy world of what I could or should be doing but not doing anything but kidding myself by thinking about it all the time I was making progress yes and that became just so disconnecting from actually being present in any sense or form and so my my coach at the time said to me and it's what 15 years ago now I think maybe around that anyway enough time ago he just said well, Sally, you obviously can't make the decision. There'll be reasons for that. So why don't you make the decision not to make a decision? I was like, genius. <laughs> That's just genius. <laughs> so I did. I said, well, just, just for a month, I'm going to stop this really indulgent worry fest about my own career, and actually reconnect in with what's enjoyable about my life right now every day. Because loads is, I'm just totally numb to it because I'm. I'm so frustrated and stuck. And so that empowerment came through taking control to give myself permission to stop worrying, really gave me a breather. Now it didn't stop me getting myself fired, (laughs) but for a month, it took my head out of the sandpit.
0: What business were you in then that you at 26 had a coach? And that was your recruitment business or was that you were recruiting for, no?
1: That's the one I got fired from. Okay. Yeah, basically I out, I outgrew it and they outgrew me, but we neither of us knew how to have that conversation.
0: Okay. And that's why you ended up with your own that that's why you ended up with your own recruitment business, because that's what you had done.
1: Yeah, well I actually went and had a year working in management consultancy and ticked my ego box of this is why I got my two one in vertical proper job. <laughs> and then that was great, but I realised that I, I missed having the direct influence on coaching and mentoring people through change quickly. And in management consultancy, nothing ever happened quickly, I found. It was quite a slow process. It was organizational design and change, which again gave me a lovely perspective and lots of learning that I now, you know, I've packed into everything I do now. And I did, I tried to get into different companies, but I didn't quite fit. My profile wasn't quite right. I didn't have an MBA. I hadn't gone to INSEAD. A lot of people don't value recruitment as a career because you're tarnished with quite a big brush and often rightly so. a lot of people in recruitment who are shocking, quite frankly, so I just thought, like, no one's going to give me this opportunity. I'm trying to find, so I, I'm just going to go to recruitment and build something that I think the market needs, which was a recruitment company that did all those things I talked about and did it very well, very consistently. But I realized, having done that for seven years, which I built it up and had you know, staff and great clients and fantastic candidate base, and you know, we never had to make a call; the phone wouldn't stop ringing. It was, I said, so brilliant, so many ways, but it was very limited. <laughs> It interested me because my base belief was I didn't actually want it. It was a. I often talk to my clients, Tom, about are you doing a decision because you're moving away from something or moving towards something? And I was moving away from the frustration that no bugger would give me a good job that I deemed exciting and well-paid enough. <laughs> so that was the motivator to go back to doing recruitment rather than moving towards the love of, oh, my God, I want to build this amazing recruitment company. And that niggle never left me.
0: Uh-huh. I just
1: didn't quite understand it at the time.
0: And so what was the catalyst? I mean, you, you, was, it the, was it just the taking the time away because you were on maternity leave that just gave you the distance to go, I know what it is, I can understand it, and I'm going I'm to fix it?
1: Yeah, it was many things. It was a long path. And my husband was very insightful, saying to me, you have actually built a business model that isn't scalable, Sally. Uh, yeah, you've got a point there, David. <laughs> because I wasn't prepared to um, compromise the uniqueness of the queer company, and to grow it, I would have had to do that. We would, to be honest, Tom, It was just the end of that chapter. I'd yeah. taken it as far as I could. I'd had a great ride. Don't get me wrong. I had a loads of highs. It was so successful on so many levels. But I guess I just knew deep down that it had gone as far as it could go, and I didn't want to sell it. I didn't want to merge. I didn't want to grow it. I just had to be brave and listen to that voice. And again, I think that lesson I had from giving away the power and sabotaging myself and being too fearful to make change before stood me in good stead to know I want to keep control of this. And even though, and don't get me wrong, it cut me to the core to make that decision because I had invested everything in that business. And technically it was very successful. That's the weird thing, but it wasn't my life calling. I knew I had more to offer. I knew I wanted a bigger intellectual challenge. I knew I wanted to go much deeper in the coaching. And I knew that, if I had the career company, it would always be like a millstone around my neck because it would need a lot of love, a lot of attention. And it was just time. It was just a, a decision that took probably about a year and a half to make, but it was the right one. But so, don't get me wrong, it was the hardest, most scariest, toughest, painful thing
0: to go through. <laughs> so then you, you sold it?
1: No, I just uh, shelved it and took the cash. Okay. Looked after all the people. Uh, there, there was a lot of assets in the business in terms of, why I now live in my nighthouse house in temperature house, <laughs> right. because I stopped the business when I did before I ran it dry.
0: Okay. And so then started again from scratch, different business.
1: Yeah. Three times actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you, well, you are, you're now on version 3.0 of your coaching business. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. And well, I actually went into headhunting. Yeah, I, I did lots of training around coaching and growth and I couldn't quite let it go. It was a bit like a drug. I was like, wow, you yeah, know, just do one more, just one more deal, one more deal. And I loved it, don't get me wrong, I loved it and I was bloody good at it. So it's hard to walk away from something that you excel at and you do naturally. So I thought, well, I will satisfy my itch if I take myself into proper executive C-suite search because that's a higher positioning, it's different contingency, which is a pay on results only. And so I did that for about... 18 months ish with a bit of dabbling in kind of work out what coaching consulting meant to me at the same time. And then I did that and I realized, no, it, although it paid phenomenally well, it was ridiculously flexible around family. Again, it technically hit every note going. <laughs> and I was like, again, it's so annoying. It's not right. And I've done it. I've put my, I've recasted myself as a search consultant. I've won some amazing briefs. I've delivered some credible mandates my husband and I have worked together, so we've both got security, and our skill sets fit perfectly to do that role. But it's not right for him, it's not right for me. <laughs> so again, stopped it, and I went into a partnership for about 16 months where we tried to build a people company, which again, for many reasons, didn't work. And it was an emotive decision. I was moving away from loneliness at that point. And I wanted, I thought, right, I've been a boss, I've been an employee, I've worked independently, I'll go in for a 50-50 partnership. That's bound to be the answer. And, it, oh, my God, it couldn't have been further from the truth. And so that was an interesting experience, and let's leave that there. And that stopped, it will be three months, three years ago in October. Okay. And that's when I thought, right, I've had a lot of lessons the hard way. I have made oodles of mistakes, whilst making a lot of good things at the same time. Um but now I need to really get this right. And it's not a partnership model. It's not a people consultancy. That's too broad. And what do we even mean by that? And then I, I really dug deep and I actually had to accept going right back to basics. I thought I could piggyback from the seniority I've enjoyed in previous careers into the seniority in this mentoring world I'm now loving. And then my ego was a bit upset, nay, quite bloody devastated. To find out that wasn't the truth. And it was only when I really letting go of everything and being prepared to go back down to basics and build back up again from, from literally ground zero that I now have the three C's that I talk about to my clients all the time. So I've got lots of frameworks. I think I'm a frustrated planner deep down, but I've got lots of frameworks and tools that I've developed myself throughout my work. And one of those is three C's for successful change, how to create it. And you have to have clarity in the first place around what is it you're wanting to create as change and why. You have to be confident, The second can see, around the emotions. Uh, this is what I talked about, actually, where we met at Silicon Beach. You've got to have your emotions in the right place so that you emotively are healthy to drive this change through. And then you've got to commit to it on a very practical level with the right strategies and approaches to lock it in and make it come true in the real world, not in your brain only, so that you can see it through. And I have those now and I utterly love what I do. I love the way I do it. There's still loads of room for growth and improvement, of course, but I'm in the right vehicle and coming into its third year in it's purest form. But what's interesting is I've done this job for over 20 years, just in lots of different ways. So I work with lots of, of the leading creative businesses, agencies out there in the WPP network, Publicis network, Omnicom network. And I also work with independent companies who, um, enjoy not being part of a network but through various stages of growth so they could be only i think one of my clients is they're literally four years old and have 15 staff and i've just been guiding that ceo founder through changing their leadership to really be in, in the md seat to then be in the ceo seat and then also how to free themselves to delegate and lead more effectively and open other global offices but I'm working with a MD in a WPP network on how to launch their regional offices and grow to CEO. So very different scenarios with quite similar themes. Uh, I do a lot of work actually when people are in that C-suite role, when they are either catapulted in at CEO level or are internally promoted at CEO level Uh and suddenly have to work out what that means. So I think there's three common ways I work with people. They're either embedding into a new identity at work through again internal promotion or being hired they are developing in that role but at senior leadership level so c-suite md founder um is the kind of core area i tend to work with or they need a refresher so a bit like i was when i had the career company loads of success and achievement but not quite effective in leadership style for example or haven't kind of come to understand some of the blind spots that are getting in the way of healthy growth so yeah high-profile business and I'm also in the last year I've been going much more into what I would call the client side. So um, people like Nestle, people like Into where I've been supporting some of their senior leaders through significant change at work.
0: Uh And so what you're working one-on-one with the CEO?
1: It varies. So my absolute dream of influence and giving positive change to a client is to work with the exec team because I think when you're working with a core team of leaders to drive change then you're You're setting up everything to work smoother because everybody's got a shared understanding of Mm -hmm. what change is happening in the business. And you can also get to the knotty problems quicker (laughs) and have those open conversations one-on-one and round a table. So if you are working with a client where you understand their senior leadership team, you understand the exec team if they're different, and then you are working one-on-one with the exec team on their, their, what I call naked truth, because that will always conquer. So my naked truth of the career company is I never actually wanted to own a recruitment company. <laughs> that was the answer. But I would never have told you that for the first five years. I'd be like, you know, it's going great, loving it, loving it. <laughs> and then though, what I do is I do the one-on-one work so we can look at what the subconscious chapter is that's going on for that senior leader. But also we bring that around the table as a group. So those uncomfortable, but also comfortable conversations can be had, which I stress with my clients, I'm not here to fix a broken bird. I'm here to accelerate growth for those high performers who know they can achieve more, better and healthier with Uh some proper expert help. Often with my clients, it's about, there's no big skeleton in the cupboard or there's no one about to kind of fall over. It's saying, look, we're really healthy, but we know we could be better. How do we get better quicker? Like a kind of coach in sport in that sense, where you're coming in and you're mentoring the strengths to become more effective faster than you have to go through a lot of painful change to grow the muscle.
0: Yes. And do you often find people in teams like you who with imposter syndrome or you know they're successful but they're just not enjoying it and they're in the wrong seat?
1: Not often not that dramatic (laughs) not that dramatic what I find fascinating is we lay down beliefs at significant moments of our careers and our lives outside of work that imprint on our definition of how we experience the world and they can be true and they can be also completely not true Because the brain doesn't know the difference ultimately between fact, fantasy, future, present or past tense. So like me, when I couldn't make a decision, every day going to that recruitment company before I got myself out or forced out, I had a fantasy of if I went in that direction, I could do this. If I did that direction, I could do that. So I had all those chats with myself. And I think at work, we're all guilty of those little voices in our head, be it the devil or the angel, who are talking to us. And it's depending on how healthy that is but yes yeah, common ones are people get stuck in the doing so they've got this really sexy job that their title is but they haven't delegated enough or understood how to let go enough so they can get onto the proper parts of their job or they don't have clarity on what that job means so often i'm doing talks to events or companies i'll ask this kind of very very basic question and i will say who here has a job description and there's a little awkward chuckle in the room and often I would say when i do doing the agency owners I would say 89% don't put their hands up <laughs> and then I'll say okay great of the people with their hands up who has a job description that's less than six months old and normally you're left literally one or two hands left raised in the room and then my last question on this will be and when you look at that job spec even if you do look at it does it motivate you is it accurate and does it clearly define your role not just to yourself but to all your SLT at the same time And normally it's not there. And then there's imposter syndrome, there's isolation, there's not knowing how to channel ambition. Another real common theme that I talk about a lot with my clients, it's about how do you get that bespoke leadership development for you? Because often you're put into a job or you grow yourself to a job where you're getting paid a lot of money, so therefore you should be good. And people then turn around and say, now prove to us why you're worth it. Oh, but by the way, with no help or induction period or time to adjust or anything, just come in and do. Yeah. Seriously? (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) Would you want a surgeon who's just been promoted to you to be the first patient upon which they are practising? No, (laughs) you wouldn't, would
0: you? No, well, and as you said, in sports teams, nobody who plays sport doesn't get coaching. You know, unless you're just doing a kick around at the park, everyone has a coach. And yet in business, it's still... Fairly rare to have coaches of any description inside the organisation.
1: Yeah, and also to shift the old stigma that coaching equals weakness to be solved. My clients are getting much more educated by this. And I'm, I'm pleased to report that having taken on the challenge when everyone told me at the beginning, you'll never get agencies to pay for this, Sally. You know, you're mad. Uh, this, is a, this is a fluffy, nice house. And I would say to them, well, you're prepared to lose money in a very established way by investing in shit recruitment. <laughs> Much more than you're going to pay me as a mentor, sadly. <laughs> I'm still trying to change that one. But why is that? Why is it psychologically and from the CFO's perspective, okay to gamble that budget on people who are unproven and could cause catastrophic disruption to your business through no fault, actually, just through misunderstanding and human error? Versus investing a fraction of that on the people you know are brilliant you want to retain. It's mad. Um, But people are cottoning on that this isn't a luxury item. If you're getting the right intervention, the right acceleration, the right support and the right understanding with no agenda other than supporting your agenda as that leader or that leadership team, how can that not be a great
0: investment? Do you have any mechanism for measuring the return on investment or is it goal based? Is it individual? Does the individual and is it long term or do you tend to go in and is it fix a problem and and gone?
1: Yeah, well, it's fix a problem and realize opportunity. So, again, a lot of my clients, there is no kind of nipping, nipping problem. It's just they want to get there better and quicker. But what I like to do is I always say my business model is rubbish for me and great for my clients because I want to make you independent of me as quick as I can. Otherwise I'm not being a very good mentor. So I will work in three core programs, one which is targeted, which I do in three months, one which is in depth within six months, and one which is extensive, which is in nine months to a year, Uh depending on the needs and the aspirations and the complexity of what we're working with. But in that set time, I will look with my client to set key objectives and goals that will indicate if we've made successful change happen, both in leadership, human level, but also a commercial business impact level. And what I do with my clients is I, for want of a better phrase, tool them up, that they can then use those tools under no licensing arrangement yet, so get them you can, on their leadership teams. <laughs> so they can just pay it forward throughout the whole business to drive that change. And my clients have said to me, the difference some of the most simple tools I've taught them have made to their lives just as humans, but also the efficiencies of their business, they've said to me, if that one thing is the only thing I've taken away from working with you, Sally, of which it's not, that has more than paid for itself.
0: Are some of those simple enough you could share them here?
1: Yeah, I will share a rhythm one with you because this is the one that most clients seem to find a life changer. And it's by no means a secret. It's by no means my IP. Uh, I think you do something similar in your work actually, so you'll, you'll resonate with this a lot. I have five R's that I created to drive successful change. And the third R in that is rhythm because a lot of clients, are operating in a bit of a groundhog day of like let's just show up to work and get our stuff done that we need to get done and deal with all the stuff that comes on our desk in that day and i will say to clients right have you thought about your rhythm of how you actually want your working week to play out under your own influence as opposed to you responding to everybody else have you ever stepped back and actually thought about it so the most common part of rhythm that seems to make a massive difference particularly in agencies It's about having a designated time to talk to your key people. So rather than an open door policy, with a lot of leaders misread as that being available and accessible and supportive, well, not if it's killing you, no. You need boundaries and you need it to be something that's managed effectively, especially the more senior you get. You cannot have an open door policy. It's just too disruptive. So if you set a given time back any week, let's just pretend it's two to four on a Wednesday, and you put that in your diary as sacrosanct. It does not move for anything. And that any person in your team who has something they need to talk to you about, or want to talk to you about, it's a very different emphasis on need or want, then they can self-book into your diary for that to get airtime. And it's easy and it's simple and it can be understood and managed. And you've got that rhythm and you must not... Waver from it one of my clients wasn't great at this and their team actually joked with me and they say yeah we call it x person's time because they're never there (laughs) and they're meant to be (laughs) but they kind of it was all done in good humor. it wasn't bad for the company but it wasn't the result i was looking for whereas most of the clients they are there and they commit and they never waver. and then their staff and their but mainly their team leadership teams have that certainty of knowing there's a rhythm of which they can plug in that lead at any one time outside of the stuff around clients or you know the wider business needs and my clients have fed back to me, whether they're the CEO, MD, or owner, and just said having that mechanism, that discipline in place, has just freed up time and so many other levels because it's focused and it's contained. And they also have a rhythm then to know how they have to handle it. A very simple, by I said, no means, proprietorial IP piece there, but it's something that often gets overlooked. And that's what I find on with high-performing senior folk, especially – it's the simple things that get overlooked the higher up you go because it gets less yes. consumption. Like I said, understanding what your job title is, what does it mean? So here's another simple killer tool, which also dives into my recruitment past. This can be used for either understanding your own job role and objective properly or what you want to recruit in, especially when you're recruiting new, new senior hires, which are very, very hard to get right. And this market has never been more changed than it is right now. So new, new is becoming the norm, but people don't know how to manage it, and they'll just try and recruit in the shadow of, in what's comfortable, and it all goes, or they go so far the other way that the person isn't different; they're alien. But what can help you eliminate that? I know there's a fine line between different and alien. So if you get your job back and you write down five core buckets that you are responsible for in your role. And it can be no more than five, otherwise it gets too complex. You can subdivide these five as much as you like. But as core essence of your job, five buckets only of responsibility. And then if you take percentage, five equaling 100, how are you going to percentage weight that job against how you're reading it and the needs of the business at this time? So when you're in a new job for your first three months, for example, you may index higher, the people and culture bit. Or maybe you've been brought in because the sales are so low, the company's going to go under unless you solve it. So you're going to have to over-index on your business, and the people stuff will just have to wait. Because if you do the people stuff, it's going to fall over because you need the cash flow. But then you can say, look, by month six, that will be looked after, and I'm going to shift the indexing of my job, the waiting, to then focus on these areas, because by that time, those things should be in place. So what that means is whilst this index waiting is happening in this way, I cannot get my hands around X or Y. Are you, Mr. CEO, okay with that, or uh, investor, or whoever? That—that's my focus, and we're agreement. This is what this job means, and we can then put boundaries around it and say, well, if my job is percentage weighted this way, that means your job has to be percentage weighted that way. Otherwise, we've got a gap. Or if we're both doing eighty percent on these areas, we're overlapping, and we're going to butt heads yes so five bullets that you percentage weight in terms of what your job's actually going to take up your time about cuts out so much crap and there's nowhere to hide
0: well and normally people fall out because they have different expectations and so what you're doing there is you're setting you're clearly setting expectations and you're i guess you're bringing in some way of measuring it and you're putting in a time frame and you're going okay so i'm we're all agreeing that this is what we're doing how we're going to measure it and this is and, and over what period of time so that everybody's expectations are the same
1: yeah and it's just clear and it's simple it's not some amazingly crafted headhunter mandate that's selling the world to the world <laughs> nor is it some absolute hr compliance document <laughs> you know but it's a very simple very easy visually to digest piece of data that can inform decisions focus budget everything but often what happens i used to use i use this in in the talk you heard me give where i say okay let's pretend i'm bringing you into my company to do an amazing sexy big senior job you want it i kind of want you to be right for it because i'm fed up looking as well and i'm a bit fearful if i don't get it sorted it's going to fall over so we're now all going to talk about something we want you to come and deliver green okay we'll use green as the color and you believe it's green I believe it's green and we're both right, it is green. And we're talking about how green is going to work and what success will look like to make it really brilliant green. And we're all aligned. You come in and start working with me or I promote you internally to do it or vice versa. And then three months in, we start to be like a little bit worried because I know that my green was always neon rays, 90s. Okay. You know that your green was always flower and Ball antique, You know perfect pantone muted colors green go with anything neither of us are wrong but we're not right either and then we then the lens that we put over our world is one that i'm suddenly doubting you understand what i mean so now i'm worried so now i'm going to look for all the reasons to justify why i'm worried because actually i've made a decision quite quickly that i want you out and despite you might be doing loads of french antique things brilliantly green I'm not valuing that, so all I'm seeing is a radar that my neon green is not getting attention. And you're thinking, why is she so annoyed? Look at the amazing Farrow and Ball-esque green that I'm putting all over the place. She's not valuing me. That's really pissing me off. And I mean, interestingly, neither of us are wrong, but we're not right. But if we had clarified the profile with percentage weighting at the point of change, or pre the point of change, that difference would have become more understood.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I see that time and time again either in recruitment or or in teams and particularly it's really easy to look back but often at the point you're looking back it's impossible to fix.
1: But also we're all humans and we we'll often hear what we want to hear because we'll get sucked into the excitement. You'll kind of hear what you want and then reflect at your leisure kind of thing. No one sets themselves up for that experience, do they? Or guess what? I really want to experience the difference of opinion that pitch low on my business or my career.
0: Yes. Oh, I've been there myself. I've been there myself. Um, Sally, If uh, what book or books have been influential in your thinking or your journey that you think others should, should pick up?
1: Yeah, so when you asked me this question, the book that came to mind is a real classic. It's the one that's in ridiculously big font, <laughs> where you get the book and you go, what on earth is this is it in the biggest font that I've ever read. And it's called Who's Moved My Cheese?
0: <laughs> right, yes, yes, yes.
1: Have you, have you heard of it?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's really old. Like, it's a really old book. And I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, bless him. But it's about two mice that go through a maze and they have a choice, like one mouse wants to sit on his cheese. He's got these um, sneakers, I think it's an American book maybe, I honestly I can't remember it, but he's got these trainer sneakers or whatever around his neck, but he won't take them off and put them on the feet because he doesn't want to leave his cheese because he's got a big massive pile of it. I think they call something like scurry and Scrawl or something ridiculous. It's like a proper of children's book but written for adults. And then the other one is like, well, hang on, I'm sure there's better cheese and that cheese is going mouldy. So they set off through this maze, they put their trainers on and they set off through the maze and go off to embrace the unknown and change. And it's the simplest, sweetest book in the most. You can read it in half an hour because the font's that big. (laughs) But it's just something that really inspired me in a very simple, engaging way through a very sweet story that was massive, practical lessons about you can sit on your cheese mountain thinking it's successful and really rich a bit like mean recruitment but actually it's a bit moldy and smelly you just can't recognize it because you're too used to it or just put on your trainers leave that pile of cheese behind and go off and find new cheese so yeah who's moved my
0: cheese okay brilliant any any others
1: yeah, two recent ones which I actually did a I do these things called walk and talks on LinkedIn okay. which is me literally walking to the train chatting away at the phone about something I hope is going to inspire and help others in varying degrees of sunshine and rain. But I was saying recently I went through this um bad habit of buying books through Amazon and getting a, a nice growing pile at my desk and never reading them. <laughs> I kind of kidding myself that I was doing I was learning because I was buying the books. Yeah two of the books that were in that list for far too long, but have recently read, which are great. One is called super engaged by Nikki Gattenby, who I think also been a, an interviewee on your
0: podcast. Yeah. 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 Fantastic interviewee and great book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Amazing book because it's just, Based in honesty, the reason you know I love Nikki so much. I've heard her talk, and and she just seems someone who's so comfortable about being honest and flaws and mistakes, and not seeing that as failure, not seeing that as something to hide or try and you know be ashamed or embarrassed about, but something to be utterly embracing of. And she's very open talking about when she first wrote Super Engaged, because her company um, PropellerNet, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: They've been voted best place to work. They're based in Brighton. They've had loads of recognition of their culture. So when she first wrote the book and she showed it to somebody and she talked about this when she shares the experience, she says that they said, Nikki, no one's going to buy this because it's too shiny. <laughs> <laughs> You're just talking about everything that worked well and why you've got to be, you know, best place to work and all this. People are going to want to hear more about the guts, you know, what went wrong. She's like, yeah. So she actually rewrote it from that angle of being very open about all the mistakes, everything they did wrong that helped them to get to the right. And so I love the book because its tone of voice is so easy to read and friendly, but also it's packed with lots of practical guides and tools. It's a very generous book. It's like, yes, take it, just have it, take it, make it what you can. So I really enjoyed that. And the other book that I recently read, a man I admire greatly, is Bruce
0: Daisley's The Joy of Work. Yes, very good. Very good.
1: Yeah. And his podcast, obviously, is fantastic as well. But in that, again, really human tone of voice, very easy to digest but loads of info and science and data and rigor that you can go as quick take out or as deep as you want in that book but there's lots of practical ways that are proven that you can take action about as a leader or an owner of a business to help businesses to be joyful again because one of my biggest drivers in why I do what I do is I think that the modern world of work is actually quite broken it's not setting people up to have those three things I talked about you know the richer life. It's your career it's your business and I think through Bruce's book there's lots you can do very simply to start to move that needle along
0: I've recommended that clients read it but also that when they're trying to create some sort of culture team in the organization that that's a great primer for that team because there's those 30 practical things that they can do so they can read it they can discuss it it's like doing a benchmarking visit without leaving your building
1: Simple things like reclaim your lunch break. Like it's seen as a weird batch of honour, especially in London, isn't it? Like I worked through lunch. It used to be when I was first in the city in recruitment, like lunch was for wimps, kind of <laughs> ridiculous thing. Like that's just mad, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why I've, I mean, I have run companies on business parks before, but actually that's the work. That's the downside of having a business on a business park is the lunch options are so shit you either bring your own or you get a sandwich from the sandwich van and it's just Groundhog Day and just demoralising. So certainly that's why Pier 1, we put it in the town centre so that we had options for people. Sally, that's brilliant. One one last question for you uh, before I let you go. Knowing what you know now, and you've shared a load of stuff about what you know now, is there anything particularly that you wish you could sort of go back in time with which would have reduced the pain or stress or, or made the strength you know, made more of a strength?
1: Yeah, I think it's just to chill out. (laughs) (laughs) If I could go back to my younger self, and even now, like my company's going through change again, all positive, but unknown, all just looking for new people to come work with me because natural move, my wonderful associate's having a baby. (laughs) So that's like a hard stop to find someone to come in and take over her role. But it's just reminding ourselves that be in the present, don't kind of put yourself in some fantasy ground of what could I should have done. I think there's a great name for a company, coulda, shoulda, woulda. <laughs> <laughs> because we all hang out there far too often. And I think the life goes really quickly. I mean, my eldest is now 10, the lovely Hugo who, you know, when I first had time away with him. And I just think, God, 10 years since I had a baby, that's mad. I'm going to be 45 in July, which feels mad. And I just think, chill out just be relaxed if your physical state is relaxed your thinking and emotional state is going to be relaxed you're going to be more receptive more alert but you can actually just enjoy it all better and often no one's putting this pressure on you apart from yourself and actually what you already have is bloody brilliant so stop flipping moaning If I'd chilled out through my whole journey, knowing that, you know what, it's going to work out to the place I'm in now, which is amazing. It's certainly not fully formed, and I'm certainly still very ambitious for growth and change myself. But if I'd have enjoyed the journey a lot more, if I'd laughed a lot more, (laughs) I think my life would have been a lot richer personally. So that's a big focus for me to really walk the walk now. And keep that little voice in my head that's like, hang on a minute, are you going into automatic pilot and stressing because you think that wrongly equates to you doing something about it and being kind of committed or invested? No, perhaps what you want to do is just relax, laugh, go for a walk. I've got a little pond. I love to watch the frogs. Go look at the frogs, you know, <laughs> just chill out.
0: <laughs> Sally, that's a fantastic tip and a big dose of positivity for the day. So thank you very much indeed. this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pop newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively not crap once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, And all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.